She's a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. She is the CEO of a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. Some of her recent clients include Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, Tesla, and Twitter. She's conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and writes for Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and a variety of other business and leadership journals. She's a frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford University and is a former executive at Oracle Corporation, where she worked as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with the 2019 Thinkers 50 top leadership thinker in the world, Liz Wiseman. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. You can't push the pause button on capability building, so the moment belongs to virtual learning. Here's just some of the ways we can help. After 30-plus conversations in the past two weeks with global client leaders on their mission-critical needs, we've created and begun delivering a modular set of learning sprints. Each is only 30 to 45 minutes in length, highly engaging, interactive, and immersive. There are several modules on each of the following topics, digital etiquette, digital relationships, visual strategy pivot, crisis leadership, and crisis resilience. Learn more at norgroup.com slash training. Welcome uh, back to the Curvebenders podcast. I'm uh, delighted that uh, I have to tell you, one of, one of my uh, intellectual superstars, and but also an incredibly just kind person and, and genuine person uh, that I've recently gotten to know uh, through the Marshall Goldsmith uh, MG100 community. Uh, and Thinkers 50 is my guest today. Liz Wiseman, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Oh, David, I'm so happy to be here and uh, talk with you about leadership and learning. And uh, I love this idea of Curvebenders. Uh, it's great to have you. Liz, for folks that may not know as much about your background, can you kindly talk a little about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived at this point? 
Oh, yeah. My background is very circular in that I started my career wanting to teach leadership. And I got told, hey, if you want to teach leadership, maybe you should go get some experience leading. So I spent the first half of my career out in industry and and learning how to lead. I went to work for Oracle. I ran the training operation, so talent development at Oracle. I ran the university there and worked there for about 17 years. Made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot of things. Uh, got thrown into leadership very, very young. So I was um, a hungry learner. Let's put it that way. I mean, that's kind of a nice way to say I was probably like an incompetent leader, but I learned fast. And then I left Oracle after 17 years and started doing executive coaching, working here in Silicon Valley. And from there, just became fascinated with a number of questions, looked for research on these questions and didn't find it. And so I really spent my time researching questions around leadership and have written a few books since then. So what made you want to get into executive coaching? Because there's there's a lot of other paths you've taken. Did, did you see that the, either there was an absence of, and I've always said, you know, great athletes and actors get coaching to take them already from doing well to a new level. Unfortunately, in business where you and I coach, there's got to be something wrong with the person to get a coach. What did you and how did you get into coaching? Well, I think it's probably... Most people have this tendency when you struggle to learn something, you really want to share it. And sometimes these are oversharers where it's like, oh, no, no, I just learned how to do this. Let me show you how to do it. I think I part of it was I had been on this really like steep learning curve around leading. And when I meant I got thrown into leadership at a young age, I got thrown into leadership. I think I was 24 and a half, 25 years old. And I got put in charge of something really big inside of Oracle. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger jobs. I've always been the youngest person on any leadership team I was on. And so I think I was wanting to help people go through that maybe more gracefully than I had gone through that. But I think the the real driver was not that I was so capable and competent at this is I had been on such a steep learning curve for 17 years. I finally started to feel like I knew what I was doing. And David, I have to tell you, it didn't feel very good. Like I know most people want to get to that point where you feel like you've arrived, like you're legit, like you know what you're doing, like at last, like, haha, here I am. I'm successful. And I, I actually felt like it was disappointing and terrible. And I, really preferred doing things I didn't know how to do. And so honestly, I started coaching executives because it was new and I didn't know how to do it. I hadn't, I hadn't got up that S curve yet. Mm. So you're, uh, I'm fascinated. You just, you just said that, you know, you arrived, you felt competent, but it didn't feel good. Why or how did it, again, it's a, counterintuitive for most of us once we feel like we're really good at something you know it's it's overjoyous to say the least what what part of it made you uncomfortable and and why is that you know i probably i i think i started my career with a tiny little bias and i remember it was a professor i had in college who said like he had been in his phd program and you know he'd been 
doing the, the, the death march through that whole dissertation process. And he said the day he graduated in commencement day, when he received his doctorate, he said it was like the lowest part of the process for him. And I think that carried with me. Like, yeah, it feels good to have achieved something. And it does feel good when you know what you're doing and people come to you. Like, it feels good for a moment. But to me, nothing feels as good as the process of mastery. Like, having mastered something feels okay. But the process of mastering something feels a lot better. And and that's what I was hungry for. It's, and you know, it was, uh, I later did a book called Rookie Smarts that was exploring this idea of, is it possible that we're actually at our best when we know the least, you know, when we're new and when we're naive. And part of the research I did for that was a, a survey went, and I went out to several, about a thousand professionals. And among the questions we surveyed people was, one, uh, how, what's the degree of challenge or stretch in your job? And then another question that we asked that we correlated with that first one was, how satisfied are you with your job? And what we found was this like beautiful linear correlation, like almost a, a, a 1.0 correlation where as challenge level goes up in our work, so does our job satisfaction. Like we we're built for challenge. Almost like that hunger level, right? It's, it's the hunt. It's the, the seeking and, and in the process getting uh, sharpening your skills as a as someone that is seeking that is the journey, not necessarily destination. Yeah, very much so. And and it does feel good to know what we're doing, but what we want after that is we want another challenge. And one of the other things we asked in this survey is like, how long does it take you once you've been given a new challenge? So it could be a new job. It could be a new project. Um, how long does it take you to figure that out? And so we found out on average, you know, it takes people about three months to sort through that and feel like their head's above water. And, and then we asked, how soon after that point are you ready for the next challenge? I was fascinated by what we got because the answer is, it's virtually immediately. Like, you know, people may need a long weekend or, you know, like, okay, let me just like catch my breath. But people are, people like, my conclusion from it was that the best leaders, they feed their team a steady diet of challenge. Like that's part of our job as a leader is, is not just to dole out stretch challenges once a year or during the performance review cycle, but like watch for people like, when do they get to that little plateau? You know, sit on a bench, catch your breath, you know, take out your trail mix, you know, refresh yourself. But then, like, people need the next hard thing. I was hungry for a hard thing to do. I love it. So your most recent book, Multipliers, I love it. How the best leaders make uh, everyone smarter. And and I got to tell you, I've heard you now present it a couple of times, and I cringe every time you bring up accidental diminishers because I'm pretty convinced like most leaders you may interact with at some point in my career I've done and always with good intentions and I was talking to Gary Ridge uh, the CEO of WD40 and our mutual friend in San Diego about it we were together last and he said the same thing we've all done them 
because you feel like that's what you should be doing. So talk about, and I would, for our listeners, I would highly recommend, and we'll put a link in the show notes in the blog for uh, multipliers. Again, uh, New York Times, I believe, best-selling book, uh, how the best leaders make everyone smarter. Let's talk about briefly the accidental diminishers. And, and I'm really curious, ever since the book was published, what, have there been some ahas? Have there been some uh, things that maybe you proved yourself wrong or, or, or maybe pivoted oh, in your yeah, thoughts? There's been a number of things where I have been wrong about things or have, have pivoted my thinking on it as I've continued to learn. So just to explore this idea of the accidental diminisher, I just need to sort of set the table here on what is a multiplier, what is a diminisher? Maybe the names say it all, but what I studied was why do some leaders seem to drain intelligence out of others? Like they're smart themselves, but they tend to uh, they, they tend to drain like the IQ out of a group. And we all know these people that they're really bright, but no one around them gets to be bright. I I called these leaders diminishers. I looked at how do they think, what do they do, and what impact they have on people. And and what I found is that these leaders get less than half of people's available intelligence. And by that, I mean, their knowledge, their skills, their insights, their talents, like, so they're leaders that woefully underutilize the capability of others. And then I looked at this other kind of leader, which was a multiplier, leaders who were smart and capable themselves, but, but they lead in a way that other people get to be smart and capable, and they challenge people so that people continue to learn and grow around them so that people are not only at their best they're getting smarter and more capable, more capable of adapting and pivoting and solving hard problems. And and this was one of the, the, the places where I was right on this was like, wow, these diminishers do get much less capability from others. Multipliers virtually get all of it. Diminishers get less than half. Here's where I was wrong is I started by just looking at these multipliers and diminishers. And by the time I got done with the, the research and I'm really writing that book, I'm realizing, and we now can see it quantitatively, that most of the diminishing that's happening in the workplace is not coming from these tyrannical, like know-it-all, micromanaging boss bully types. It's coming from the accidental diminisher and people who really like being managers, who really care about their people, who see capability in others, but who are following a lot of popular management practices that are really quite diminishing. In fact, can have as diminishing of an impact on their team as these bully diminishers. And and I, I guess I could just share a few of the ways that this happens a lot. Please. Well, why don't, well, let's start with yours and mine. I think between our own accidental diminisher tendencies, we might cover a lot of the map on this. I'll start with one of mine. I am a massive idea guy. I love innovative environments and creative thinking. And I love it when people are just like popping off ideas. And so I come into meetings, like bursting, like I I struggle to tame my brain constantly. Like, hey, what about this? And we thought about this and let's consider this. Well, maybe we should try this. I'm an experimenter. And what happens though, is that when the leader tosses out these ideas, they think they're, they're, they're catalysts, they're sparking ideas for others. But what happens is that 
everyone else chases the boss's ideas and doesn't have to do any thinking of their own. Like we become idea lazy around people who are sort of idea rich and and it ends up killing. It's like a wet blanket on creativity. So that's that's one of mine. I can give you a couple of my others, but David, why don't you jump in with what's one that kind of resonated with you? I know since, uh, you know, you know me and you know what a shy, introverted person I am, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Not. Uh, two really resonated. One is always on. <laughs> Just, sorry, I wake up at, you know, really early in the morning, ton of energy, and I just, you know, I, I've been told I have this infectious kind of energy and personality and I'm not shy. I'm not quiet. I like to share my ideas. And that, that really, I've seen it shuts other people down, which is just, I'm baffled by, wait, wait, no, no, no. I want, I want you to be on like with me and not, not kind of revert back to kind of your cocoon. And so that one really resonated. And then again, another one. Uh, maybe, you know, part of where I was born, part of my just drive, the pace setter, right? As long as I've known me, it's been go, 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 let's go. We got a lot of stuff to do. I want to get 75 things done today. And it is exhausting for others that aren't wired the same way. And and I can absolutely have seen it that they get overwhelmed or they feel like they're not good enough or they can't keep up. And you feel like you got to go back and pull them along with you. So those two really. Right. You as a leader kind of dragging people along and exhausting them. Yeah. The, the, and that's a really powerful combination This always on and pace setting, because we find that when leaders lead by example and they set the pace for their team, they they're more likely to create spectators than followers. Like people are watching you do your thing rather, you know, because we really want to put the, we want to be trying to keep up with the people who work for us. And we want to be able to mirror the energy that they have for their work. So yeah, those are two, two good examples. Um, I'll give you another one of that we see happen a lot is the rescuer. Now, this is one where I probably don't suffer much from this. Uh, I Maybe it's being among our kids where I've gotten over my rescuer tendencies. But the rescuer is the person who really, really cares about the people who work for them. They want them to be successful. They see people struggling and then they jump in and they help. And, you know, and we, we all know what happens when a leader or a parent rescues too early or too often that people become dependent on them or they learn, you know, I don't actually remember to bring my lunch to school. You know, dad's going to drive it down to me, or I don't really have to finish the project. My boss is going to come in here and sort of carry us both across the finish line. And I guess those are, and and I could share a few more of mine. I'm, I'm a massive optimist and you know, a lot of people be like, whoa, how can optimism be diminishing? Well, you know, sometimes when leaders only see the upside, like it relegates everyone else to having to look at the downside. Or I tend to, because I'm so convinced, David, that like we can do this, we can do hard things. Like I actually, it's this byproduct of my deep belief in myself and the people I work with. I'm so convinced we can do things that people are sometimes like, Liz, Liz, whoa, whoa, 
not only do we want you to understand that this may go wrong, we want you to see that we are struggling here. Like this is hard. Like that steep learning curve that you seem to like so much. Yeah, it feels good, but it's miserable while you're on it. Like, can we just stop for a little bit of a pity? (laughs) Uncle, uncle. (laughs) Uncle, seriously. And, And it's one of the things I've learned to do a lot differently as a leader is I've learned to talk a lot more about the downside of things, like what's going to go wrong, why this sucks, why it's hard, why we're likely to make mistakes. And boy, it's had a liberating effect on people who work around me because the like they don't want me to be a pessimist, but they want me to see where they are. You mentioned uh, that you got the, the it's not, it wasn't the bullying micromanaging type, it was the accidental diminishers. We also mentioned you've pivoted. Where have you pivoted in your thinking? You know, I feel like I made a massive shift in my thinking. And it was between the first edition of the book and the second edition of the book. And I started not only thinking it was like diminishers versus multipliers and accidental diminishers. I thought it was about people, that you were either a diminisher or a multiplier. And what I've learned is it's not really about which one of these you are. It's a lot more about the moments, meaning, and I want to, I want to like relay something. I heard this really phenomenal multiplier leader said she was, this is Casey Leonard. She was receiving our very first multiplier of the year award. She's a design director at Nike. And as she's accepting this award and Nike went really big in in, um, helping us bestow this. She said, you know, being a multiplier is not about not being a diminisher. It's about creating as many multiplier moments as you can. And this like helped me lock in what I had been seeing is it's less about assessing ourselves. And it's a lot more about assessing our interactions and our day. And what I've learned is that if you lead like a multiplier by rule, meaning most of the time you're leading this way, you will have built the trust on your team that you kind of earned the right to have some diminishing moments by exception, or, or that you'll minimize this accidental diminisher impact. But it's really a quantity thing. And so I really think about not assessing people as more as taking inventory of an interaction. Was that a multiplier moment or was that a diminishing moment? I, I love it. And, and, I, and I want your help in pivoting for a second. At the time of the recording of this podcast, we're amidst of this coronavirus, COVID-19, chaos, panic. Are there some correlations between multipliers, accidental diminishers, and this what seems to be an unprecedented event where there's no playbook. We, we, none of us know. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. It truly is a black swan event. Well, I tell you, it is a great world event for the pace setters and the always on um, leaders of the world because it's forcing all of us to just in some ways take a collective nap. And just slow down a little bit. But, you know, there are some interesting things I've seen as I've watched leaders respond to this. You know, I, I can't help it. I'm a leader watcher. I'm constantly watching how leaders lead people through crisis and such. And 
One of the things that I really dug into in researching and writing for multiple is that this behavior that's diminishing or multiplying, it flows from the, the core assumptions that we hold. In this case, it was, you know, diminishers tend to hold the assumption that no one's going to figure it out without me versus multipliers tend to believe that, you know, fundamentally people are smart and can figure it out. Where we are right now in this COVID-19 crisis, I think one of the things that's really interesting to look at is to look at the U.S. response to this and how the knee-jerk response to this crisis was good, but it was limited in that the knee-jerk response was, okay, let's shut down flights. Let's shut down flights from China. We're now, you know, have shut down flights from Europe. And it's interesting because if you look at what's the assumption that's driving that decision, the assumption is the threat is outside of the United States. It's, it's foreign. But what we're seeing right now is the part that was, was, for the most part, overlooked was the testing and the containment, which is very much a domestic issue. And I think we're at a point in time, just in the U.S. response to this, where we're seeing, oh, you know, the assumptions that we hold that have been driving kind of the way that we've been leading and thinking about things are actually putting us into this kind of precarious position. And I think it's a great reminder that we all need to check our assumptions. Um, A a practice I once stumbled into, a leader has this practice of um, to audit his assumptions at every quarter or so. He'll sit down with his team and they'll take inventory of what are the assumptions that we're operating under right now. And they make a list and they put it on and then they prosecute each one of them. Like, wait, do we have evidence in support of this? Or actually, do we need to change our assumptions? And I think that's what I have learned, David, really through all of my research and study of, of leadership is that really to change the way we lead, we have to change the way we think. And I think, yeah, coronavirus is helping us realize that some of our assumptions have been limited and we need to change our assumptions about how we treat this pandemic. I was going to say, what an incredible opportunity for leadership maturity to do that, right? To really question what are, what are, what are my assumptions and, and be open to, I think I mentioned, we have also have a mutual friend and Peter Bregman who was talking about emotional courage in previous episode. And, 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 and he said, if you don't, if you're closed off to feeling everything, you won't feel anything. So being open to, uh, yeah, what are some of the assumptions we're making and how do we, how do we, how do we challenge those? If not, I love that prosecute those. Well, and, and David, you used a great word. You, you used the word maturity. And I really do think it's a sign of leadership maturity when we can. It's probably leadership wisdom when we can reflect on our assumptions. But I think it really is a sign of maturity when we can change them and evolve them and say like, wow, okay, not like I'm wrong in the moment. A lot of us can say, oops, I was wrong about that. My bad. But to say, I've been thinking about this wrong, I need to change the way I think. And, you know, we kind of have hinted a little bit at um, 
a government and government response, but I think it's one of the things that is really sad about politics. Now, I think most people think there's a lot of stuff that's sad about politics. Here's what I think is most sad is that we, in the political arena, we don't allow people to change and evolve and get better. Like we, we don't really create room for people to say, you know, I used to think this, but now I think that like I've been exposed to more information. I've met with families. I've, I've come to see things differently. We call them flip and, and such. So I think we need to create room for our leaders to evolve and not always toe a particular line or like be staunch on something. Talking about evolving. So again, Curvebenders, this nexus of future of work and strategic relationships. Liz, how do you see multipliers? How do you see leadership evolving in the next, you know, if you and I were to revisit 10 years from now and, and you looked back, how do you believe leadership and this idea of, of multipliers and those that, that genuinely lead with great success? How do you think that's going to evolve in the next decade or two? And, you know, it's such a it's such a profound question, David. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure this out. Here's how I see multipliers evolving. It's part of how my thinking has evolved on this is, you know, I, 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 I know for certain that good leaders use the intelligence available on their team and that, you know, bad leaders like hire smart people, but then underutilize them and cause them to like shut down, pull back. But I think more and more, it's not about how much of the existing intelligence you're using. It's as a leader, it's how, what are you doing to not only use the intelligence you have, but to help people get smarter and more capable, but not in a linear way. It's the ability to change, to adapt. Like, are you helping your team to realize we do need to let go of assumptions and to pivot? And and I think more and more, the, the job of leader, let, let me back up a little bit. I, I want to go back to like a, a point when I was in the workplace at, at Oracle and back when I had like a, a job. And I remember we were teaching leaders like your job is to take people to a better place. Like almost like what the leader's job was to describe here's this better world, this better place, this better product, this better thing. And I can see it like take my hand and I will lead you to greatness. Like I'm going to take you to a better world. And that was the model that we thought of for leadership. And I think it's, I think it's a luxury we don't have because so often leaders are taking their team to a place that they don't even know about. Like, I don't know where we're going because I can't see around corners, but I know we have to leave. Like, I'm taking you into the wilderness in some ways. I'm taking you from this place of comfort and I and we're going to evolve and pivot and change, but I don't know really what's around the corner but let's go together. And what we're going to have to do is sort of special ops. Like we're going to go into this VUCA environment and then we're going to have to figure it out together and improvise. And it is a, it's a harder way of leading. You're leading people into the unknown, which means you lead with questions, not answers. And so I think more and more leaders need to, to help 
people make radical change and rapid learning. And more and more, it's not about leading your team. It's about leading these massive collectives across organizations. It's about leading um, movements more than leading teams. So we, you and I discussed curve benders as relationships that come into our lives and this idea of future of work dramatically, exponentially change both the direction and ultimate destination of where we're going and how we'll get there. Liz, can you talk about, uh, can you think of some curve benders in your life? In some ways, like Marshall's been for so many of us, have there been some folks that have dramatically changed your direction? You know, there really have been. And I did. I have to say, I really like this idea of curve benders. And people, I think, historically, like in my world, have often called these semi-magical people, like multipliers. Like, oh, that person was such a multiplier to me. I was so smart around it. But I really like your idea that they're, they're curve benders because they they don't just take you on this linear thing. Like something radically changes in your world when these people come into your life. And I have had a number of these. And um, one would probably be Ray Lane at Oracle, who just, he was president of Oracle, and he just gave me these massive opportunities and then never stepped in and did it for me. Like never backed off of the hard things that he had done that he had asked me to do. Like he, he led without mercy for me. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger opportunities. And, you know, once I said to Ray, I'm like, Ray, why is it that you never stepped in and did things for other people when you saw that they were failing? And, and Ray said, he goes, Liz, you know the answer to that. You know me better than anyone. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to know. And he said, because if I stepped in and did something for someone who was failing, like, then it would be a failure of leadership. Ray was very my curve bender to me. And I think another person was um, Dr. C.K. Prahalad at the University of Michigan. I talked about him a little bit at Thinkers 50, but, you know, he had this similar thing. He just took me under his wing and I felt like I got my PhD, like, one-on-one with, with C.K. And so much of what I know came from him, so much how I think. And, you know, he taught me how to how to find assumptions underneath action. And, you know, and, and he gave me these nudges, like when I was doing my research for multipliers and, and I was reviewing it with him. And I'm like, you know, I feel like I need to do more research in China. I don't feel like I have enough of a data pool from Asia. And he's like, Liz, stop. You've done more research than any, you know, dissertation I've ever read. He said, publish, like go publish. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think I should do more. No, Liz, you've got this go and publish. And, and there were so many other places where he just said, no, go do this and, and go be big about it. So when I'm, thank you for those. Uh, when I often share with folks that curve benders are relationships that dramatically change our direction. Uh, and, and of course, an obvious question is where you find them. And the less obvious one that is, I think, even more profound is how do you become one? Liz, what, what, are there some attributes that you believe would make someone uh, a potential, if not a prominent curve bender in the lives of others? Mm. You know, I, I 
It's an interesting question, one I haven't thought about, but there are a few thoughts that do come right to mind. And I think there's some tools in the coaching world and the coaching toolkit that help. And it's about asking nonlinear questions. It's about asking challenging questions. And um, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I'm going to go to a couple little curve bending moments that I think where I've been able to do that for other people. One was very recently. It was someone on my team who was really struggling with where she should put her career focus. And she had been straddling these two worlds and it had really been vexing her. And I listened to her for a long time and she recounted this to someone else. She said, and then Liz just said, well, why do you feel this tension? And why do you like, why do you need to do both? And I just kept asking her some why questions to the point where she's like, wow, like I, like the assumption she had been holding about this just wasn't true. And I just asked a few questions that allowed her to let go of it. And she's like, wow, I'm going to go and experiment with this. And, and it was just liberating for her. And I think it was a curve bending moment for her to get clarity. But it was one of those moments where I could see that there was this assumption that was holding her back. It's funny, like my curve bender seat Prahalad taught me to see assumptions and it was a case where I was able to do that for someone else and uh, just not I, a couple years ago we had someone who was uh, here at our house doing some work and he had been uh, laying some floors for us and this man um, Scott Truex is this wonderful wonderful man and he had been telling me, you know, this was a job he was doing kind of in between things. He's an incredible builder and engineer. And he had been telling me that, you know, he, one of his life's goals was to continue his father's work. You know, his father was um, this engineer who was the one who built the rocket back in 1974, where Evil Knievel, the stuntman, got in the rocket and was shot over the Snake River in Idaho. Are you familiar with this, David? Do you remember? I, I, I am. I am. And I actually have seen pictures of it, which is insane. It's insane. So it was this insane feat in the stunt world, never before had been done. And Truax's father was the, the lead engineer, who, the rocket scientist who had built this. Well, the the stunt ended up failing. Um, can you... Uh, Evil lived, but the the parachute deployed early, which was really not part of the rock function, uh, rocket functioning. Anyway, Scott's telling me about this story. He says, I've always wanted to replicate this to show that my father's rocket like, was sound, that it could have made it. It wasn't the failure point. It was the parachute. And I got talking with him, and I knew that this was an, like of interest. I think I asked him this question, and I said, well, Scott, like, because, you know, of course, this is a hard decision to make is to go do this thing. It's going to cost a lot of money. He's going to invest um, years. I'm like, Scott, well, like, I understand why you wouldn't want to do it, why you would. I said, but like, can you live with yourself if you don't do it? And he was working at our house and, and he just stopped and he's like, no, I don't think I can. And he finished up this job, went back to Idaho and pulled this project together and they they have replicated this successfully across the Snake River. I think there's a movie coming out about it. I think he's written a book about it. But, you know, he later went back and told me, he goes, Liz, you just 
asked me, well, would you be able to live with yourself if you hadn't done it? And I didn't think it was a big moment. I'm just talking about it with him. And for him, it was this curve bending moment. And I'm so proud that he went and did this and they were successful. Interestingly enough, you've just highlighted something that Liz, our research is pointing to, which is they tend to curve benders in a a very natural way, tend to see the best version of ourselves. And they, and they question, you brought up, they nudge, they challenge, they uh, really light a spark in us to really get that line of sight, to really see what that potential could be. Uh, and, and they, they, they in, in Amy Edmondson's terminology, create that psychological safety for us to go test it, for us to go try it, and for us to be okay with, even if I fail, even if it doesn't work, at least I tried it and I went down that path and, and I tried something very differently. So, so uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Liz Wiseman, I could genuinely talk to you for hours on end. Um, so for others who want to learn more about you and your work and What's the best way to get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to learn more about you and your work? Well, let me see. I'm not hard to find. Uh, we've got a website, thewisemangroup.com, and it's thewisemangroup.com. If you go to wisemangroup.com, it's an interior design firm in San Francisco. <laughs> That's not you? For you. No, you know, their website is far more interesting than ours, and you might be better off by going to that one, but um, we are the Wiseman Group. Dot com, or there you can go to any of the books websites multipliersbooks.com bookiesmarts.com we see it on twitter i'm at liz wiseman you can connect with me on linkedin uh you've been listening to liz wiseman the winner of the most recent uh leadership award at thinkers 50 a marshall goldsmith mg100 colleague and friend she's the author of multipliers the rookie smarts the multiplier effect Liz, thank you for being here. Thanks for being a guest on the Curvebenders podcast. And I'm always grateful for your insights, your ideas, your perspectives, just conversations between us. Mm, thank you. And thank you for the, the work you're doing on Curvebenders. I think this is going to be very interesting. Very kind. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast recently, you've heard that I'm working on the Curvebenders book. This will be my book number 11 with tools, insights, case studies, examples, interviews, in essence, the knowledge you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in this idea of future of work. I'm excited to share key sections with the first 100 participants, so go reserve your spot at norgroup.com today. If you go all the way to the bottom of the page in the get in touch section, just capture somewhere Curve Bender Insights.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on multipliers with Liz Wiseman. I first heard Liz share her insights on accidental diminishers a couple years ago in Silicon Valley, and the entire time I'm thinking she's reading a checklist of the many mistakes I've made over the years as a leader. And yet we've also all met and hopefully at some point had the opportunity to work for those multiplier leaders who just elevate our thinking perspective, analysis, and synthesizing skills, knowledge, and behaviors. If you haven't already, I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Liz's book, Multipliers. It could become a huge asset to not just your ability to manage the current storm, but also in your post-crisis rebound efforts. Join me on the next episode of the Curvebenders podcast when I interview global branding expert, Martin Lindstrom. Lastly, don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so check them out on our website at norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 